Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us. Today's show will open with some recent headlines before going into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest needs little introduction. Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush, who recently stopped by our studio to discuss a range of topics concerning the Indiana judiciary. We've got a packed show for you today, so let's get started. Today is June 1st, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start off with some big news from the White House. President Joe Biden recently announced the nomination of Magistrate Judge Doris Pryor of the Indiana Southern District Court to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. If confirmed by the Senate, Pryor will be the first person of color from Indiana to sit on the Chicago-based appellate court. Pryor has been a magistrate judge in the Indiana Southern District since 2018. Before that, she worked in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of Indiana, including serving for four years as the National Security Chief for that office. She also has experience as a public defender, serving as a deputy public defender for the Arkansas Public Defender Commission before coming to Indiana in 2006. Additionally, she served two terms as a law clerk, one in the Eastern District of Arkansas and one in the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals. Pryor has been nominated to fill the vacancy that will be created when Judge David Hamilton takes senior status this year. Indiana Republican Senator Todd Young has already signaled his support for Pryor, and Indiana Democratic Congressman Andre Carson released a statement saying he was the one who recommended her for the appellate bench. But Indiana's other senator, Republican Mike Braun, was noncommittal, saying he would, quote, carefully consider her qualifications, legal record, and judicial philosophy. Biden is intentionally trying to diversify the Seventh Circuit bench. Judge Candace Jackson Akawumi, a black woman and former public defender, was confirmed to the court in June 2021, while Judge John Lee has been nominated to the Seventh Circuit. If confirmed, Lee would be the first Asian-American judge on the Chicago appellate bench. At our deadline, Pryor's nomination had been sent to the Senate Judiciary Committee, but she hadn't yet been scheduled for a hearing. We'll keep you updated as her nomination moves through the Senate. Next up, Indiana lawyer reporter Katie Stancomb has a deep dive into a lawsuit that's making waves. If you watched Netflix recently, you've probably seen a promo for the new documentary, Our Father, which tells the story of former Indianapolis fertility doctor Donald Klein, who used his own sample to impregnate dozens of women without their consent. Now, two of the children born from Klein's actions are suing Netflix. Katie, give us the details. Discovering that your mom was artificially inseminated with her doctor's sperm by the doctor himself is a life-shattering reality that dozens of people are waking up to after taking a simple DNA test. For two Marion County women... That reality was broadcasted for the world to see on one of the highest-trafficked streaming services in a new documentary called Our Father, which chronicles the acts of former Indiana fertility doctor Donald Klein. Klein impregnated dozens of fertility patients in the 1970s and 80s at his Indianapolis clinic. The man pleaded guilty to two counts of obstruction of justice in 2016 and was handed a one-year suspended sentence. The Hoosier women, identified as Janet Rowe and Jane Doe, are suing Netflix and Bloomhouse Productions over the documentary, claiming their specific names and photographs were used in the film without their explicit consent, identifying them as Klein's secret children. Their complaint in Marion Superior Court alleges that the producers contacted many of Klein's secret children about participating in or submitting photos of themselves for the documentary, including Rowe and Doe. Doe refused 
while Roe provided baby and adult photos of herself for one segment of the film. But the complaint says that she never authorized Netflix to use her name in the film. Robert McGill of McGill PC is an Indianapolis attorney representing the woman. He told Indiana lawyer that his focus during the proceedings will center on privacy protections afforded under applicable law, including the Indiana Supreme Court's recent decision in Community Health Network versus Heather McKenzie. West Circle, a Zirkle advisor in Indianapolis, mostly represents celebrities and frequently reviews releases from TV producers for his clients. If the material released Netflix presented to the plaintiffs was only limited to any photos provided by the women, Zirkle says that would be unusually narrow compared to industry standards. Typically, releases are expansive to give producers as much artistic license as they need to tell the story they want. My guess only is that the pledges referenced in the complaint were oral statements made by the producer about how they envisioned the documentary being put together from an artistic perspective and were not intended by the production company to be an absolute promise that this is how we'll use the image. It was probably more like, hey, we're storyboarding. Zirkel says that while the women in the documentary experience profound and real harm, the legal system is often only able to award money damages. He says he thinks the women's requested injunction against the defendants is extremely unlikely, but there's more to come with this case, he predicts. Stay tuned as we follow these cases in the weeks to come. Back to you, Jordan. Thanks, Katie. Now I've got a couple of lawsuits that I've been following to tell you about. First is a case against officials in Clay County, Indiana, the only Indiana county that has an agreement with federal immigration officials to house immigration detainees. I've previously told you about plans to expand the Clay County Jail to make room for more U.S. immigration and customs enforcement detainees. I've also told you about the pushback against those plans. The county was already sued once in a case that's since been dropped, but now a new lawsuit alleges county officials are misusing funds meant to care for the ICE detainees to pay for other county needs. According to the lawsuit, which was filed by the National Immigrant Justice Center and attorneys at Sidley Austin on behalf of four ICE detainees, Clay County officials have, quote, spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on county expenses and discretionary expenditures that are unrelated to care of plaintiffs and others detained by ICE at the jail, end quote. That allegedly includes $83,000 for an air conditioner at the local courthouse, plus money for raises and bonuses for county employees, among other expenses not related to the immigration detainees. The complaint also claims the jail failed an inspection in May 2021, then conspired with federal officials to make sure it passed a follow-up inspection last December. The plaintiffs are seeking declaratory and injunctive relief to, quote, stop defendants from continuing this unlawful detention arrangement. Both the federal and county defendants declined to comment on the allegations. Next is a lawsuit out of the Indiana State House, where Republican lawmakers recently voted to overturn a veto and allow a controversial bill to go into effect on July 1st, banning transgender girls from participating in girls' K-12 sports. Since the Indiana General Assembly adjourned in March, it's been widely expected that when lawmakers return for technical corrections day on May 24th, they would overturn Governor Eric Holcomb's veto of House Enrolled Act 1041 
So when lawmakers followed through on those plans last Tuesday, the ACLU of Indiana was ready with a federal lawsuit that was filed within minutes of the veto override. The ACLU's lawsuit was filed on behalf of A.M., a 10-year-old transgender girl from Indianapolis who plays on her school's all-girls softball team. The complaint names the superintendent of Indianapolis Public Schools as the defendant. Under HEA 1041, A.M. would not be allowed to continue playing on the all-girls softball team. The lawsuit says that violates A.M.'s rights under Title IX as well as her rights under the Equal Protection Clause. The plaintiff is seeking an injunction against the bill that would allow her to keep playing on school-sponsored girls' sports teams. Proponents of the bill have maintained that the legislation is needed to ensure fairness in K-12 sports, but opponents say the bill is a solution in search of a problem. Since 2017, only two transgender waivers have been submitted to the Indiana High School Athletic Association, both of which were from last year. This case has been assigned to Judge Jane Magnus Stinson and to Magistrate Judge Pryor in the Indiana Southern District Court. We'll keep a close eye on this one as July 1st gets closer. Staying in the State House, this year's list of summer study committee topics has been released. Indiana lawyer editor Olivia Cummington has the highlights for us. Heeding a call from a bipartisan group of state lawmakers, the Indiana Legislative Council has assigned a review this year of the state's criminal laws concerning HIV. The focus of the review will be modernizing state statutes and helping end the HIV epidemic. As Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl reported last week, the Legislative Council has ordered the Interim Study Committee on Corrections and Criminal Code to conduct the review of the state's HIV laws. Ten Republicans and six Democrats urged legislative leadership to order the HIV review in a letter sent to Indiana House Speaker Todd Houston in March. The lawmakers pushed for the review based on the belief that Indiana's existing HIV laws were born from an outdated perception of the virus, including fear and stigma surrounding it. The laws criminalize behavior such as biting or spitting, even though it has since been proven that those behaviors cannot spread HIV. The HIV study is one of 32 topics that were sent to a summer study committee this year. Other topics include looking at efforts to ensure patients and offenders who are released from Indiana Psychiatric Hospital or from the Indiana Department of Correction are connected to the appropriate care. Like the HIV review, this topic was supported in a letter from lawmakers. The council has also ordered an examination of Delta-8, Delta-9, and other THC and marijuana-related topics, although Senate President Pro Tem Rod Bray downplayed the idea that Indiana would make any dramatic changes to its marijuana prohibitions. Senate Minority Leader Greg Taylor says he is pleased the council assigned the marijuana review, but he also says he is disappointed that veterans' issues are not on this year's list of study committee topics. Also not on the list of study committee topics this year is the issue of providing children with counsel in child in need of services and termination of parental rights cases. But Republican Senator John Ford of Terre Haute is taking that issue into his own hands, announcing that he will convene an independent study group to examine that issue. Senator Ford has said the group will include a roundtable at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law with stakeholders, legislators, judges, public defenders, and others, although he did not provide specifics on when the study would begin or who exactly would participate. We'll check in with these groups throughout the summer and fall months, so check back with our website for periodic updates. Next, let's switch over to some law firm news. Our sister paper, the Indianapolis Business Journal, reported last week that a new firm is coming to town. East Coast-based firm McCarter & English has opened an office in Carmel, bringing over eight attorneys who previously practiced at Ice Miller LLP, plus some former Ice Miller staffers. The McCarter & English team plans to focus on complex product liability litigation, cybersecurity, and healthcare compliance, as well as issues related to pharmaceutical, chemical, device, and other manufacturers in state and federal court, according to IBJ. 
In a statement to IBJ, Ice Miller said, quote, This move was the result of the consolidation of a client's legal team in one of its mass tort cases. End quote. The statement added that Ice Miller is continuing to expand in key practice areas and markets. Indiana lawyer senior reporter Marilyn Odendahl recently sat down with leaders of McCarter and English's Carmel office, and she'll have that interview for you ready in our next issue of The Indiana Lawyer. Make sure you grab a copy of our June 8th paper to get the full story. To wrap things up, let me tell you about a story I'm working on for the June 8th issue of Indiana Lawyer. The FBI has released the active shooter incidents in the United States in 2021 report, detailing 61 active shooter incidents last year, more than a 50% increase from the previous year. One day after the report was published, the shooting at Robb Elementary School in Texas happened, and there was a supermarket shooting in Buffalo a week earlier. We're also coming up on the 10-year anniversary of Sandy Hook. I'm digging into the numbers on mass shootings, especially in schools, and talking with experts and lawmakers to get their perspective on what's driving the increase, and whether or not they think state or federal laws should be rewritten to try to prevent more gun deaths. Be sure to pick up the next issue of Indiana Lawyer to read that story. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. Head over to theindianalawyer.com for more on any of these stories, and for more news from across the Hoosier legal profession. Stick around after a quick sponsor break to hear our conversation with Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Indiana Chief Justice Loretta Rush in studio with us today. Chief Justice Rush, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Jordan. I would say most of our listeners are probably pretty familiar with who you are, but just as a very brief background, you took the oath of office as Indiana's 108th Supreme Court Justice in November 2012 after being appointed by Governor Mitch Daniels. After being retained by voters, the Judicial Nominating Commission uh, named Rush Chief Justice in August 2014. Rush was reappointed as Chief Justice in 2019. You received your undergrad from Purdue University, and your law degree from IU Mauer School of Law in Bloomington. Uh, prior to your appointment, uh, Rush spent 15 years at a Lafayette law firm and was elected three times to serve as Tippecanoe Superior Court III judge. So, to begin, we often like to open with a question, this question to our guests. What led you to a career in the law, and uh, was becoming a judge and justice always part of the plan? No to the second question. Um, <laughs> the first question, you know, I started P- Purdue 1976. I had an engineering scholarship. I thought I was going to be an engineer. And when I came to Purdue and I was signing up for my classes, I said, well, do I still get to take some philosophy, logic, the arts? They go, no, you don't. You get like <laughs> one elective a year. So I thought I'm going to have to switch majors. So I switched. Um, and I took a constitutional law class with a professor named John Tiford. And I was enamored. I took common law one, common law two, and really loved the idea of um, our Bill of Rights, the Constitution, and looking at fact situations and um, resolving them, taking the facts, applying it to the law. And that's what our sort of our democracy is built on and the rule of law. So I was hooked. So I got degrees in economics, sociology, history, and government. In the second semester of my senior year, uh, a friend of mine was going up to take the LSAT. At that point, you could go, just go sign up and take it that day. Um, I had never met a lawyer or a judge, and I went and took it. And then I actually went and worked on Wall Street that summer and then came back and went started Bloomington Law School. 
Interesting. All right. Well, the big news right now at the court, of course, is Justice David preparing to to step down. And if we did our math right, we think this is the third new justice. His successor will be the third new one in the 10 years you've been on the court. Correct. Is that a normal amount of turnover? How does that stack up? Well, you have to think, Justice Massa, Justice David, and myself, that was in two years. There were three. Mm -hmm. So that probably was a shorter period of time. But I'm still in mourning um, <laughs> at the thought of Justice David retiring. I mean, we just had oral arguments today. I said, are you sure you want to do this? <laughs> so I think it's not. I don't think it's, you know, compared to what it was. We had a completely new court. Right. And, and now we've got Justice Mass has been on the court 10 years. I've been on the court 10 years. Justice Slaughter, I think, is seven. Justice Goff's coming up on five. And between us, you know, I did the math at one point. I can't remember the math. Was how many years of legal experience we had on the bench, and it was it was significant. So any amount of turnover, it's obviously going to change the court a little. Is that you know, do you see this as a bringing a big change to the statewide judiciary overall, or is it more of an incremental type thing? You know, I think it's no. I think it's yeah. I think it's a big change. I think I mm -hmm. think Justice David, for many reasons, Justice David had just spectacular outreach um, in the communities. I mean. We'll be done, we'll have three oral arguments, conference for five, six hours, and then he'll drive up to Porter County for a Veterans Court graduate. So I think Justice David's accessibility, personality, it's just hard to replicate that level of energy. Yes. <laughs> and it's, I mean, so I think that's different, but I think everybody brings sort of a unique skill set. And I'm looking forward to what that skill set's going to be and what strengths that next justice is going to bring, because um, there have been many. And, Sometimes you somebody comes on the court and you don't see that they've got this strength and skill set. And then when you work with them daily, you go, wow. I mean, you really learn a lot from them. So I have every confidence that Governor Holcomb is going to pick a strong one. I think the three candidates are all um, incredibly intelligent and, and talented. And, I, I, and they all have a lot that they'll bring to us. Sure. But, but we'll be slightly different, just as we were. I call them the Fab Five, those five <laughs> that were there together for that period of time. I'm at Morph, but... I think we've kept the momentum going and, and kept the um, quality of our jurisprudence going in their footsteps. You kind of touched on it there, but um, there is some time still left from him on the bench, but how will you remember Justice David's legacy uh, on the Supreme Court? Well, I've known him for so long. I mean, I've known him. Um, we both became uh, trial court judges. We both had a real passion for issues involving children. I mean, I think his, I think Steve's a big thinker. Um, I think he has a passion for improving, you know, not just saying, hey, this is the way we do things. We can be a bit of a barge in the judiciary. He's done so many things, efforts he led. When we were sort of tanking on technology, we had lost a lot of our funding on that, and I became chief justice, and I said, you know, we had gone from kind of significant tech funding to almost no tech funding, and how are we going to keep technology going? He goes, I don't know a lot about tech, but I'll do it. So there he and Paul Mathias stepped up pre-trial. He's leading the diversity um, uh, task force now. So I think he'll be remembered as really leading a lot of the initiatives. And I don't know if you had a chance to listen to him on the state of the judiciary this year. I said, well, let me talk about something. Well, why don't we have him talk about it since he led that? And I think that's really summarized. I, I, I loved watching him. Of course, I had to give him a word count. Um, <laughs> but I loved watching him be able to talk about the initiatives that he did. So um, he we're not the same court we were 10 years ago. What would have happened if we hadn't made these innovations when COVID hit? And, and he deserves a lot of credit along with my um, other three colleagues for the work we did to get to that point. 
Jordan, I'm going to go a little out of order since we're talking about um, e-filing and Justice David's work on that. You know, we did, I think Jordan did the story a few months back about Mm -hmm. my case being in all 92 counties. So, you know, that's a a big check mark. So what's next for court technology? Oh, there's a lot of things next. Um, We, uh, you know, the idea that we have 6 million people a year go on to see their court records where you used to have to um, get in your car and go find out. And you're in the media. Don't you love to just pull it up? You know, I, I love it up. so much. Thank I, you so you much. Know, <laughs> I found out one of my children had a speeding ticket I didn't know about. Oh, no. and I found out by looking up their name on my case. Um, oh, you know, online dispute resolution, right? Mm-hmm. Text messaging. We've had better show up rates right now um, for people. So, you know, when can you have a remote hearing? When should you be live? Attorneys now, I was a partner in my law firm. Attorney can go to the attorney dashboard right now and see every case they have. Mm-hmm. And that, that's just miraculous with regard to finding out deadlines and, and times. And, you know, we used to have to go to the courthouse and get, print out a copy of the CCS. I mean, when I started practicing law, I mean, there weren't even a fax machine. It was a big deal in the 1990s that Justice, mm-hmm. uh, Chief Justice Shepard got a fax machine. So there's a lot of, we're looking at, um, you know, court performance and measurement metrics and how do you triage a case so that it doesn't take you a year and a half to get an uncontested divorce and how do we move cases timely through let's collect the data see where our impediments are to getting cases resolved because we have almost every day we can pull so much data now and then the flip side when the jail overcrowding task force and we had a problem with regard to not being able to get good real-time data on pretrial reform efforts. So we said, we'll, we'll, we'll build that system. The public defenders needed a system, we built a system. So we probably have, I'm gonna say, I'm just gonna pull number 50 inside applications that are user-friendly. And it, here's just an example. It used to be when you would get a ticket, which you, I don't get tickets, other than my son gets a lot of <laughs> tickets, obviously. Um, the police would have to sit and write it out. It's electronically transmitted now because of court technology. So online dispute resolution, um, text messaging reminders, triaging cases, electronic discovery. Um, I think the, the sky's the limit with regard to providing access to justice um, through that. I think about technology as far as rural community doesn't, don't have access to a legal aid attorney or a public defender. What can we do with technology with regard to remote representation? Mm-hmm. So I think there's a lot. Uh, interpreters, making sure everybody appears in court and understands um, what's going on. And, but we can't get somebody that speaks this particular Chinese dialect. Well, we can now because we don't have to bring them alive. We'll do it. So I think there's a lot on the horizon, and we're watching it, watching that nationally. We're also looking with regard to cybersecurity. It's become a real issue. We don't want people to go in there and jeopardize our information, and we have definite cybersecurity issues nationally and, and with the judiciary, so we have to work with technology on those. You recently went out to Washington, D.C. and sat on a panel uh, discussing the unmet civil legal needs of low-income Americans um, during the unveiling of the Legal Services Corporation's 2022 report. Um, In Indiana, this is especially uh, an issue in rural communities. Uh, What is the Supreme Court doing to help these Hoosiers uh, have access? It's a real problem. And, you know, I'll start by saying we're not doing enough. Um, When you you look at the, and I I don't even know how you find that I'm on this panel. I don't know how we, Katie just told us. Katie Stancombe's shout out to her. Um, So I was on this panel because I feel very strongly that the courts have to be open. You look at the number of people living in poverty, and 80% of people in poverty in Indiana have at least one unmet civil legal aid need. And you look at people Mm -hmm. going through the problem-solving courts. I just went to a veterans court graduation. 
what are the impediments from people being able to work and succeed? Um, and it might be um, a homeless vet can't access vet benefits or because we've lost so many people to drug overdoses and COVID, grandparents need to get a guardianship so their child doesn't go in the child welfare system. So a couple things we do, we require mandatory pro bono reporting, but not, so we're able to see the hours that are done. Um, we advocate for more funding for civil legal aid. Um, I, I help um, on grants with regard to getting more funding for rep represented. We started something called the Coalition for Court Access, where we took every entity that was dealing with unrepresented, we put them together. We now have, you go to indianalegalhelp.org, we have a large amount of forms available. We're working on videos, um, so you've got the self-help. We are getting more funding for pro bono districts for, unrep you know, for unrepresented people to have um, legal representation. We advocate for legal services, one of the reasons I was out there, to get more funding, and there's a request more for more funding. And there was an economic impact study done in Indiana. What is it? What, what happens when people that have a civil legal aid need don't have it? For every dollar invested in civil legal aid need, we actually the study shows it gives 6.7 back, 6.7 dollars back to the community. So it's a good business decision with regard to get, getting people those help. But but we're constantly we're we're not no different than any states. You have a right to an attorney in a criminal case. You don't have a right to an attorney in a civil case. And sometimes these civil cases are the impediment to get somebody off the streets. We're also working on medical legal partnerships. I know you're asking for a lot, but I care about this issue like a lot of issues. But we're, we are embedding civil legal aid attorneys in medical facilities. Maybe somebody's going with addictions or mental health issues and that you can work together um, with them. Last night, Katie probably didn't find this, I was, <laughs> on, I was on a national seminar with the American Association of Psychiatrists. It's just the Judicial Psychiatric Partnership. We are working with them because we don't go to law school understanding behavioral health needs, um, and they don't go to med school to determine the criminal justice needs. We're working together with them and dealing with the people in the criminal justice system with significant serious mental illness and substance abuse. So another initiative that has kind of taken shape more recently is the diversity and inclusion initiatives at the court. Um, kind of two-part question to that. One, how do you measure the success of something like that? And then two, what challenges have you seen in those efforts? Do you know, we're gonna, I was gonna, I knew you were gonna ask that, and so I was just talking to Justice David, and we have this um, Commission on Equity and Access, and here are the work groups that answer that. There's um, seven different work groups, data collection and interpretation, um, court case processes, diversity and online, on um, ADR and mediation, best practices, small claims, pathways to the profession and bench, and consequences of convictions. So we are looking at that. So wow. we're not just saying we need to do better, we're looking at ways to measure. So that group is meeting, we probably have about 60 people from around the state, really diverse group um, on these different work groups. Deb Daniels and Norris Cunningham are leading them up. There will be recommendations coming to the court. You know, as with everything we do, don't do it if you can't measure it. Right. So the reason that we have the data collection and the outcome and the pathways is to um, do it in a measured way that we're able to see one, what is the picture? What does the landscape look like? There will be surveys done um, statewide with constituents groups, and all this information will feed into this working group. And Justice David is going to continue hmm. sharing that commission through through its end, which thank you, Justice David. <laughs> what are some uh, Supreme Court initiatives going on right now or will start in the near future that you are excited about? Well, as you can tell with asking <laughs> any of these questions, I, you know, all of these ones are important. I think it's really important that we 
um, really develop the initiatives we have in place. When I'm looking at commercial courts where it's business versus business and make sure that you know, we've made them a permanent fixture, I, I, thought, I think that is important. We're looking at pretrial practices um, and criminal justice reform. We are certifying, so we have, every county has to have their pretrial practices certified so that we're able to measure and make sure that it's you know, staying faithful to the best practice model. Um, Problem-solving courts, veterans courts. We just had the 10-year anniversary of our first veterans court, Judge Granger, down in southern Indiana, and it was really inspiring um, to watch something in 10 years. And now, different communities that maybe can't have their own problem-solving court are banding together. Floyd County, Harris County, Washington County, and Clark County, they all band together to have a veterans court. Mm -hmm. So where something you might not be able to do in a rural community, you band together. We have to look at... Um, we're going to have problems in the future with regard to an attrition on attorneys in rural communities. We're already now seeing a lot of issues on, um, you know, I don't want to have justice by geography. How do we look at that? We have a mental health summit um, this fall where we're inviting um, teams from every community, the Justice Reinvestment Team, for better responses in partnership with 988. Um, and what 988 is, you call 911 when you see a crisis going on, the police come, and it's a criminal justice response. How do we build the infrastructure in the communities that you don't have to have 50 to 70% of people in jail with mental health mm -hmm. issues, substance abuse issues? When can we safely divert them? So I'm looking forward to the judiciary working, and believe it or not, the judiciary is the criminal justice system is the number one referral source, other than self, to get people a treatment. That's a scary. I mean, if I was somebody that needed treatment and I was relying on me um, to get that done, but what we have to do is train our judges, um, have our judges get out from behind the bench and working with their justice partners. So I think better response to those people with substance abuse and mental health, when can you safely leave children with their parents as they're going through recovery, such as our family recovery courts? Um, I think the sky's kind of the limit with regard to building a stronger judiciary that people have trust in that can, you can get your case decide faster, better, um, and, and more efficiently. So, you know, obviously the court's very busy and you personally are very busy, you know, on top of just being a justice, all these initiatives that you work on. So how do you make it all happen? Um, there's really, you have really good people. We have mm. 250 employees for the court. There's 600 trial court judges in Indiana. There's 18,000 attorneys. And we have good people working on projects. And I think it's being good at, um, you know, finding talent and mm. asking them. I mean, you know, I look at Judge Bob Altice. I asked him if he'd help me with the eviction task force. He helped me with the eviction task force. Nancy Vedic and Chief Justice Shepard. Um, either Bart, when we went to the UBE, um, Judge Tavides with regard to the Family Justice initi Initiative, you know, Judge Melissa May helping with the Civil Justice Initiative. There's good people that care great deeply about having a strong judicial system. And in Indiana, we don't want to just sit back and say, oh, well, you know, I'm just going to decide cases when there's things you can do um, that you know that you can do early on in the case to, to have better outcomes for the people that come before, before us. What is something lawyers should know about, about you that they might not know? Oh, I think there's a lot they don't know. About me. Um, <laughs> well, we know your son gets parking tickets yes, or driving tickets. <laughs> yes. Um, oh, I've been married 40 years uh, this weekend, which I'm very oh. proud of. I have several grandchildren who I love spending a lot of time with. And 
I think I'm pretty transparent with regard to um, really having high expectations um, for our profession. Really want to see people be the best and do the best. And sometimes everyone's, you know, I've had cases where I was a pro bono attorney. And I don't remember everybody I had, but every time I go to the ballpark, I'll see somebody. They'll always remember you as an attorney. So I guess what I want the attorneys to know is just every one of those clients you have, you're sort of that face of justice. They will always remember that you were their attorney. Um, and I, you know, I, I don't live in, I, I live back in my community, Tippecanoe County, and having been a judge for so long, you really can't go outside the door with somebody. It's either you gave a bad decision. So I, I get a lot of good, honest feedback in my community, um, in the grocery store and everywhere else with regard to, you know, what I did right and what I did wrong. Um, but I like hearing that. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks again to our guest, Indiana Chief Justice Rush, for joining us today. As always, you can catch up on past episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on theindianalawyer.com or via your favorite streaming service. <laughs>